1: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello, Fresh! Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My first ever
2: gig was when my daughter was 14, my little one was 14, and the reason I could start comedy then was because I didn't need a babysitter anymore. You know, but Until then, I worked full-time. How could I possibly work full-time, pay a babysitter and go out in the evenings? I'd never have seen my kids. But by the time they were 14 and 17, they couldn't give a shit. They were delighted that I was going out at night. So that definitely was, had an impact on why I started comedy so late.
0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to stand-up comedian, writer, executive coach and public speaker, Callie Beaton. Hi, this is Steve Whiteley, comedian, actor, filmmaker and writer, all-round ADHD creative. And welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts. And we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond balancing acts is now made in association with the comedy crowd who are a website and community that support independent comedy creators such as myself i have a comedy crowd short which is a a two-minute video one of my characters on their website they showcase the best new videos on comedy crowd tv which is comedycrowdtv.com and across media platforms so do go and check them out Kelly has worked as a TV executive at companies including MTV, UKTV and Viacom and is partly responsible for bringing shows such as South Park onto the air. She was a senior vice president at Viacom and whilst working at Comedy Central in 2015, she began performing stand-up and was encouraged by Joan Rivers, no less, to pursue it as a career. Uh, She has also headed up an independent television production company that was bought by ITV's at the time, Colton Television. She has written for the likes of Guardian. In 2014, she founded Road Trip Media. She's a BAFTA voting member and holds a seat on the development board of MTV's Staying Alive Foundation. And if that wasn't enough, she's also appeared on BBC Two's QI, Numerous times she's been a guest on the likes of Radio 4's Museum of Curiosity and BBC Radio 6 Music and BBC London. And she's also been a panellist on Radio 4's The Unbelievable Truth with David Mitchell and BBC's The Blame Game. Callie's taken two solo shows to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which received uh, four-star reviews from the likes of The Scotsman and Funny Women. She won the 2018 Piccadilly Comedy Club New Act of the Year competition and has been tipped from Chortle as one of the comedians to watch. I'm exhausted just reading that out. She's, uh, She's packed in a lot, as we did in this episode. So we cover a load of ground, uh, including why running and exercise is so important to uh, Callie's mental health, why she left her job as vice president of Viacom to pursue a career of public speaking and stand-up comedy. And she explains this concept of when in reinventing yourself, you can upsize as opposed to downsize. And she explains that as a coach, she would often talk to clients who wanted to make career changes to hone in on deciding how to make choices on how you make your money. And that will hopefully lead you to uh, pursuing a career that you enjoy and are passionate about. And uh, she discusses the idea of everyone needing to do their stint as a barista or equivalent before pursuing a career as as a comedian or a performer just to develop that that work ethic. She explains what NLP is and how her curiosity of people and the world around her led her to study it and the impact it's had on her. Uh, We talk about how she's um, adapted during these lockdown times uh, why she writes projects at the last minute? We talk about our respective addictions to our phones, and Callie describes the experience of attending the Hoffman Process Retreat, where she was cut off from technology for for a week, or maybe perhaps ten days. And we also share our fellow retreat experiences. Kelly breaks down why it's so important to turn up every day, even when you're not feeling creatively inspired. And she tells a story, a fascinating story on when Seinfeld, Joey Seinfeld, was, was early on in his stand up career and he was thinking about giving up, how a group of working builders inspired him to stick with it and go up a level in terms of his dedication and professionalism. Callie describes what it's like being a single mother of two uh, whilst working a full-time job and then you know also becoming a stand-up comedian. She explains the idea of the Eisenhower matrix and how she applies it to her time management and why time spent on the wrong thing blocks you from allowing really the right things or opportunities to turn up in your life. We also discussed Callie's uh, debut. Edinburgh Fringe experience and the transition from attending Edinburgh Fringe as a TV exec where everybody wanted her at their parties to then being a comedian that wasn't really getting the same level of attention and and what that was like and also the struggles of dealing with Edinburgh Fringe uh, emotionally and mentally. She breaks down the experience of being on a panel show such as QI. There is loads here. If you're someone who's maybe contemplating a career change, perhaps slightly later in life, or or you know maybe you've been working somewhere for a few years, and you're like, nah, this ain't for me." Well, then this episode will be inspirational for you because you know Callie was in a very successful corporate career as as a media executive, and then she decided to go all in on the the comedy and public speaking, and it's worked out pretty well for her so far. So so I think uh, you're going to be inspired by by Callie and uh, hearing hearing her journey. So over to Callie. Okay, so first things first, and I'm sure you, you however many different um, interviews or podcasts you've had since, I'm sure a lot of people have asked you the same question. How are you post uh, Corona, having Corona yeah. as someone who's actually had it?
2: Who thinks of it? I mean, I've still not been tested and I've okay. the um, antibody test, but I'm pretty confident after seven weeks of quite severe respiratory coughing type illness that it was um, COVID. Yeah, so, um, and I'm actually hoping to get antibody tested next week for what that's worth. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, I mean, I think just having, I got it on the, I got my sort of serious symptoms on the second day of lockdown. So it was really weird because just when everyone was getting used to the challenges of lockdown, I was um, flat out with this blooming thing. And then I thought I was all right after a couple of weeks, um, which is what seems to be the pattern with people with this. And then it hit me really hard and I got pneumonia. And then that laid me out for another month. So in total, I had sort of six weeks when I was, well, there were lots of days. I just couldn't do anything. I could barely get as far as the kind of bathroom. So it was really grim. And, And so even though everybody was feeling very locked down, quite understandably, I would be hearing people outside my house kind of, going out for a walk with their dogs or chatting to someone kind of like across the road. And I was like, God, I'm literally just stuck in the house. So it was, it was quite grim. And then physically um, I'm fairly fit, you know, I run and I'm pretty healthy, but I felt it did literally take me seven weeks to start. I went for my first run seven weeks after my last run and that's someone who's never missed a run in 20 years. So yeah. So there you
0: go. I can, I can feel your pain in terms of also being someone that's very active I'm, I'm not a good patient. I'm not good at just sitting there doing nothing. It's, uh, it's no, it's not easy. So how was the first run back?
2: It was all right. Yeah, it was all right. I was sort of, um, anyway, do you run?
0: Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah,
2: because anyway, you know what it's like if you run and you sort of, it's kind of addictive anyway, and you sort of do it more days than you don't. Mm. So even if you miss a run under normal circumstances, you're like, oh, I've probably lost my running form. So after seven weeks, I was like, I've never had that long off running. And I'm not getting any younger. Maybe this is it and I won't be able to run. No, it was fine. It still feels, my breath still feels like I'm breathing on a cold day when I run. Like it feels really sharp um, still. But I can, my breath sort of, I've got capacity in my lungs. It just hurts. But I don't think I'm doing myself any harm. And I'm determinedly going to keep running. I mean, it keeps me sane, really, um, which I know we'll talk about. But um, I'm not, I'd rather risk permanent damage to my lungs, but keep mentally well. I think that's the right trade-off. But, that's balance. Um, <laughs> yeah so but it's been all right I've been running um every couple of days ever since then and I'm I'm back on form now
0: that's the best thing isn't it once you've been ill and then firstly to have your health back again you sort of like you, because it's so easy to take it for granted because you're just getting on with your normal life but once you've been ill just to feel healthy again and then also to be able to do physical exercise and live and lead and lead a sort of normal life is is a nice feeling
2: yeah, it does feel good. And even, um, you know, sometimes you sort of feel like you don't want to do exercise. You're like, oh, I can't be bothered to run or I can't be bothered to go for a swim. And as I was lying there, I thought, I am never complaining about going for a run ever again. If I'm well enough to run, I will be thankful that I'm well enough to run. So it's been a good leveler for me about exercise and just enjoy, really enjoying exercise again. So so yeah, I, I'm definitely sort of pretty much back to normal now as much as any of us are back
3: to normal.
0: Yeah. So are you because i'm i've've you've done so much like there's there's so many different things I want to talk to you about do you are you still do you still work as a senior vice president at Viacom? was that
3: That's
2: good. Yeah. So I I left that job very stupidly left that job a couple of years ago, just when I could really do with uh, the job security now. Uh, So, um, yeah, so I left that job um, in 2018. And I still do bits of work in telly. um, And and in fact, that's one of the things I'm doing during lockdown. So I'm lucky that I've still got, um, you know, things going on, uh, not production, but sort of more on the business side. And the sort of development side. So I'm, I'm working with a couple of the big companies um, on a few things during lockdown. So at least that's giving me a little bit of work and a bit of, you know, um, sort of, well, just something to do with my brain, really. Yeah. So um, but yeah, that, that my last sort of major day job ended um, ended on my instigation a couple of years ago.
0: OK. And, and was that to focus on stand up comedy more sort of full time?
2: It was partly to focus on stand-up and actually that was starting to get more of a clash because Viacom, as you probably know, they own, um, among other things, they own MTV, Nickelodeon, but they also own Comedy Central and Channel yeah. 5. So it was starting to get a little bit, no, they were brilliant and really supportive, but once I started getting sort of telly and radio work on, on screen, it was starting to become really weird that I was also somebody off screen and... and and involved in companies who were commissioning people that I was working with, not that they were commissioning me, you know, I wasn't getting any favours or anything. I never, I've never, i never done any shows on screen for Viacom. So it wasn't like I was commissioning myself, but it just felt um, increasingly like there there was going to be a bit of an oddness around that um, and everyone was good enough to sort of be really supportive, but I kind of thought, hmm, it doesn't quite feel right anymore. And then also I, I sort of made my living out of public speaking, really. Um, so even though my time is spent, fifty fifty stand up and sort of after dinner speaking and giving speeches at conferences and stuff. Right. The the conferences are obviously what they what pay a lot of money, the corporates, and or a lot of money compared to stand up, a lot of money. Although yeah. anything's a lot of money compared to stand up. Um and it was starting to get to the point where I was getting asked to do speeches and because I was also a Viacom, you know, senior manager it wouldn't have been alright for me to just go and do like a speech at, at you know what whoever it was for the nhs or for an insurance company or whatever because i was their person so i couldn't just go off and do my own public speaking career which i started to really want to do and i started to get a lot of opportunities and i was turning stuff down because it was a clash with my day job and i thought maybe i can make a living out of public speaking and stand up. Uh, so kind of basically, give me a microphone, put me on a stage and I'll try and address the situation, whether it's comedy or something more corporate. So that's why I left really to to try and go it alone as a performer and speaker, not just a comic, but yeah, comedy front and centre. I
0: right, So it sounds like it was quite like a seamless transition um, moving from, I guess, we say the equivalent of being behind the camera to in front of the camera to being someone that was working with talent, to then being talent yourself, was that like a? Sh- I, I was going to say, was it like a shift in sort of like a, a mindset? But I guess you're kind of used to it if you've been sort of doing live public speaking for a number of years. You already had that within you.
2: I suppose I had. It's funny because one of the things that I, I talk about um, when I do speeches, one of the big things I talk about. And I'm working on a book about it at the moment. Is reinvention and what and how you can. Um, how you can reinvent and go bigger, not smaller. So people sometimes assume that if you reinvent, you're downsizing. And there's a lot being written about that, you know, give up all your worldly possessions and, you know, go and run a lavender farm in Provence. And that's great. You know, good luck to anyone who does that. But I've sort of gone, I've upsized, not downsized. So I've got more high profile at an age when you're meant to get more invisible. So one of the things that I talk about when I talk about reinvention is the idea of um, what's portable what can you take with you so when you decide to do something different what are the things you did in your last job or the things you've learned on the planet that you can take with you and help you do the new thing so I suppose I didn't really think of it like this at the time but I suppose everything I'd done before this kind of led to this in a way so doing lots of public speaking um, and being a sort of person who made my living out of words essentially albeit words on behalf of a company but it was all about me communicating messages I guess Um, and then it was just a different version of doing it so I suppose I was used to the um, I was used to the being able to hold sort of big rooms um, and I find it easier to hold a big room for a corporate than I do for a a gig which is I know most comedians say the other way around because it's what I'm used to doing but I suppose the big shift of mindset was um, you sort of live or die on your own sword now you know I've got no one to sort of no one to protect me if it goes wrong, if I can't work, if I muck it up. You know, it's on me. Um, obviously, I don't have that luxury of the lovely support structure. So I had, you know, a lot of people around me at Viacom, brilliant people, who I, most of whom I still kind of am in touch with. And I'll also, obviously, financially, I, you know I'm a single parent. It's kind of on me to make a living. So. I kind of, there's also, there's no buffer zone, uh, but it also, but obviously it's really, it's, it, I'm free, you know, nobody, nobody, um, nobody can control what I do or don't do. And I'm, you know, I'm ready for that at this stage in my life. I, someone described it to me, uh, another woman, my kind of age, she said, your wise mind just gets wiser. And um, I do remember sitting in a boardroom quite near the end of my time at Viacom and just looking around and thinking, I think I might be about to say what I actually think. <laughs> so it, might be, it might be time to go. And I just couldn't, I, I knew how to play the game. And they, you know, they're great people, it's a great company, but I just, I'd just i done my time and it was time to move on. So yeah, so I suppose it, it was a big leap and it wasn't a big leap in answer to your question.
0: Yeah, but I guess from, from an outsider's perspective, you could look at it and go, wow, that takes a lot of courage to do that. Particularly- because you have in in a way you've got more to lose to a certain respect if you've had such a successful corporate career and to sort of turn your back on that but it's great that you knew that that was that you were ready so that's my bluetooth speaker and it always goes off i always forget to switch off it always goes off. i
2: don't know it's not yeah. it's like a podcast without someone's electronics doing something rogue so yeah it's authentic um yeah no i think it's um yeah in terms of the sort of courage that it takes. I, I always used to, you know, I've, I've worked, um, as you know, as an executive coach for a long, long time and I'm doing, and another thing I'm doing during lockdown is, is quite a bit of um, coaching. And I always used to say to people who I would coach because a lot of people, when they come for coaching, for whatever reason, actually want a big change of direction in their lives or they're debating one. And one of the things I would always work with them on was, you know, if, if what is the only thing keeping you where you are is money. Albeit, you know, you've got to earn a crust. But if that's the only reason making you do something, absolutely, you might need to do it for a bit longer. And we all need to earn a crust. But then it's time to start thinking what you would rather be doing because it's incredibly hard to sustain a working life that's just for the money. Hmm. And that sounds like a very privileged position. And, and I'm not, you know, I don't come from privilege. I, I've got no sort of, I've got no one backing me up financially. Never have done. So it's not about, um, it's not about being born into money or anything. It's about deciding to make choices as to how you make your money if you possibly can. So at the point at which I, I knew I was, I wasn't just there for the money. I loved, I loved my career in the media and I worked really hard to build up to the point I was, but I did get to the point where I thought, if someone said to me, you don't ever have to worry about money again, I probably wouldn't do this job anymore. And then I thought, well, then it's time to go. You need to find another way to earn some cash. So I was really practicing what I preach in coaching and and trying to sort of, live by my values so yeah that's kind of yeah so that's that's i decided uh, not not that it's a dirty dollar but i decided not to take the dirty dollar anymore um, now obviously i take dirty beer tokens uh, and no dollars but you know it was a nice idea at the time
0: yeah yeah the uh, the romant- the romanticism of going into the world of comedy and then the reality is somewhat different
2: It surely is. I mean, I knew that because I guess I've worked in comedy most of my TV career, so as well as working, I've worked for Comedy Central on and off for about 20 years. Yeah. I've worked with quite a lot of the major comedy producers in the UK, so I've sort of... I've been on the other side of comedy most of my career. Were and you working so I've been, as a
0: commissioner. What, uh, no, I was never mean? a
2: commissioner. So I worked on the business side. So I was okay. there. To, um, I worked primarily on the international side of television. So I would sit on the development boards for different creative companies, sometimes comedy companies. Okay. And I would be the person working at how we could sort of monetize the ideas around the world. So is this going to be something that's going to you know that's going to work? You know, so I worked on South Park back when it was first created, and was that something we thought we could? make money on around the world um obviously the answer as it turned out was yes, yes. i'm ashamed to say at the time i was first asked i was like no this, <laughs> this is 21 years ago no one was doing that kind of thing i was like nah this this is a bit niche
0: it will never
3: work
2: <laughs> it never work so um so yeah so i wasn't a commissioner but i was involved in commissioning decisions okay. based on the fact that i was looking at what the international potential was so i was always looking at can we make money out of this if we do it in the states or we do it in the uk
3: yeah
2: how can we make some money out of it around the world? So so yeah I was I was involved in that process, but I was never a commissioning editor.
0: And Do you think having worked in on that side of things has that massively helped you in terms of the other side of your, of your comedy career in terms of figuring out your branding and all that sort of thing and also just like your your work ethic.
2: Yes, I mean the answer to but and it sounds really like arrogant, yes, I'm brilliant at both of those things. That's not what I mean. But yeah, I think there's I mean, to answer your second bit of that question first, so work ethic. Um I always kind of um jokingly say, that you know, everyone needs to do their stint as a barista or as a, you know, you know, behind a bar or whatever. And some some comics, you know, I got into comedy at forty-five, I did my first ever gig at forty-five. Um, and obviously, there are some comics who are starting out in their teens, and some who are good enough and deserve to make it big, you know, in their twenties. And they've never. So I've got hay fever. This isn't. I know no one listening can see this, but I'm rubbing my nose in a very cocaine fueled manner. <laughs> but it actually, it's, just, it's, it's not. On, it's not a, a, a relic from my MTV days. It's just hay fever. But um, yeah, so people who get straight into um, comedy without having had a real job i think sometimes don't have the housekeeping skills to know how to keep things in you know, maybe they're just young you know i think yeah. when i was young i wouldn't have known what to do so i will uh, i will kind of organize myself and have a work ethic i think lots of young comedians this is going to come across really badly lots of young comedians and comedians of all ages have a work ethic yeah. but i think i i think in terms of like keeping my little black book of contacts alive and just trying to make sure i kind of um you know always am very very follow up on things and do things in the way that I would like to be done to. I suppose that's something I've learned with, with time on the planet. Appreciate the irony of me telling this to you, who's re, who I've rescheduled the podcast with about 17
3: times.
2: <laughs> really, like Kelly, you weren't very professional with me, but um, I apologize for that. Uh, so yeah, I think that's, I think that I did, I did sort of learn that experience um, from, from working. What was the other bit of your question you said?
0: Yeah, I guess in terms of it, In terms of it having an impact on the branding side of things and, and, you know, the way that you market yourself as a comedian, because it is important.
2: It's really important. And again, I don't, I definitely don't think of myself as someone who has a real, I don't ever stop and go, oh, what's my brand? How am I coming across? I don't ever sort of sit and have a sort of marketing conversation with myself. But I am aware that probably because I've been involved in marketing TV shows and creative ideas my entire career since I was, you know, 21. I suppose it's instinctive to me to sort of get out there and I'll do the best with what I've got, definitely. So if anything is going on that's positive or I want people to know about I will absolutely get it out there. But it's just sort of instinctive. It's not a sort of cynical, I'll take over the world thing. Yeah. So I realize it at gigs. Sometimes people say, oh, my God, your career is going so well, Kelly. And I'm like, it really isn't. My marketing of my career might be going well but there's nothing better about what I'm doing than most other people you'll meet so i think some people undermarket themselves and i no one can accuse me of undermarketing myself
0: yeah i think in this industry perception is massive in terms of like as you said people just say oh you're doing this this and this and their perception is different from what you consider the reality to be Definitely. but as long as they think you're doing great that's all that matters
2: Yeah, there's definitely people I've always, I'm sure you've seen it as well. It's the classic comedians thing. Um, uh, I'd I'd like to say I've never done this, possibly I have. Um, People where you see them absolutely die on their ass at a gig and you're there and you're like, blimey, that was a rough one. And fair play, we all have them. And then you see them on Twitter later, you know. Maybe it was a big club, but they still died at there. And they're like, you know, oh, I've just had the best night of my life, at, <laughs> you know, at the comedy store, or the boat show, and you're like, oh, you didn't know, did you? But then, of course, a very small handful of people know know what happened, and the rest of everybody else it's amazing. You're at that yeah. big club and you're smashing it. So I think there are plenty, of, and maybe some people think they do smash it when they don't. I don't know, but I do think there's a bit of a. I was on stage at this big venue. I'd like everyone to know, and no one needs to know it didn't go quite right. So I suppose we all. We're all making a fist of what we've got, aren't we?
0: Yeah, we're making the best of it. So you're also a master practitioner in NLP, neuro linguistic programming, which is like the isn't that the basis of what Tony Robbins bases his his approach to uh, coaching on? Is that right?
3: Yeah. Well, first
2: of all, I'd like to just just associate myself from Tony Robbins and say that. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think it's probably part of the melting pot of the whole phenomenon that is Tony Robbins. I don't know if anyone's seen that. Um, did you see the Netflix documentary yeah, sure about him? Yeah, it says it all, really. So I'd like to, first of all, sound very different to Tony Robbins. So um, NLP, yeah, Neuro Linguistic Programming, it's it's quite hard to describe, but it's basically the study of subjective um, behavior and experience. So it's looking at um, the way we think, the way we speak, and the way we behave, And it's looking at um, how we do stuff. So if somebody does something kind of brilliant, how could you model it and learn to do it based on their sort of thinking, speaking and neurological patterns? So you learn various techniques about how you manage all those aspects of yourself. You get aware of that. And it was originally, it's a sort of melting pot of a huge number of other things that went before it. So it was, um, I think it was in the 1960s that it was sort of, it was come up with. And by then it sort of, took all the best bits of psychological movements that had gone before it. And it was a sort of a a way of a sort of amalgamation of things that had gone first. So I did it. Um, I'm not, by the way, but some people listening will know what NLP is and will have a really strong opinion about it. Some people absolutely hate it and think it's almost like witchcraft. Some people won't know what it is and some people won't care. And I don't mind where anyone falls into any one of those camps because I've never been... um, evangelical about NLP I think it's a useful tool that I use in coaching and I've used in life a bit but it's only one of many um I'm not I'm not obsessed with it by any means and for me it was more about the life experience of studying it so I did it when I was um on the board at Carlton Television which was part of ITV and I was quite young to have got that job and it was only because um a small company I was running got bought by a big company. So I found myself in a sort of senior corporate role without knowing that's where I was going. And that's when I started studying NLP. And it was really to sort of reconnect myself with um with people and the human experience instead of just being um all about the bottom line and all about kind of I was in a boardroom full of kind of pale, male, stale telly people um and it just didn't feel right. So I did it really as a means of kind of being curious about the world and, and thinking about people as opposed to money, really. Um, so I did it as a, as a sort of self-development thing, honestly, rather than anything else. Um, and I'm really glad I did it. I did it over 20 years ago, and it, um, and it really helped me. But I did it with someone who's a very experiential teacher called Sue Knight. Um, I did my NLP with her, and she,
3: it, you, could,
2: I don't, I've never done any NLP with anyone else. But from what I gather, it's seen, it's used as a sort of gimmicky a bit of a sort of David Brent type thing by lots of people. So you go and learn a little toolkit of NLP and then you go and try and sort of out body language people at work and, you know, influence them to get what you want. And it, it all sounds a bit gimmicky and tacky. And the way I did it, I was lucky that I did it with someone where it wasn't really like that. It was Mm. much more about understanding yourself and how you communicate. It was much more, it felt like it had a bit more, um, yeah, something that was more personally interesting and authentic. So that's probably the least comedic answer you've ever had to a question on this podcast, but nonetheless, You'd be heartfelt.
0: surprised. You'd be surprised. Um,
2: <laughs> would I survive that life for comedy? Blimey.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so have you? Have you? Would you say that you've like incorporated that into your approach to to stand up, or is it more of a case of well, if it kicks in, it's like it's more of a subconscious thing rather than actively using
3: it.
2: I don't actively use it in anything, so anything: right, okay. you know there's that whole thing with um, there's a whole thing with like learning new things, and they say you know you're unconsciously incompetent, then you're consciously incompetent, then you get conscious competence, and at the top of the pyramid is unconscious competence. so you're working your way through levels of how you use things that you know, right. um, from not even knowing you should be doing it or could be doing it through to doing it effortlessly and the bits of NLP because it's been so long ago the bits that are interesting to me and work for me. I've just assimilated into me now because it's been such a long time. So I don't ever think, oh, I'm using a bit of NLP. I suppose it's part of all the things I do. But in terms of comedy, no, I mean, God, I'm just like everyone else, just desperately trying to get a laugh and trying to write something that's not absolutely dogshit awful. So I wish I had some kind of witchery or magic that made me um, able to be better at comedy because of NLP. But I think it's, it makes no difference at all. Uh, so it might help me get on with people sometimes off stage, you know, maybe it helps me be a bit smoother with how I not smoother, but you know, connect with people. I don't think it hurts to know how to build rapport with people. So I suppose I know how to do that. But no on stage it's just you, the microphone, and a load of blank faces. Or at the moment, no faces and no microphone. Just, just
3: staring
0: yeah. into a webcam. Have you done any gigs of iZoom?
2: Yeah, I've I sort of it was weird as well, because I mean you wouldn't think you'd have FOMO during lockdown, would you? But because of that first month or six weeks when Everybody, I mean, it's been so tough for everybody in our world. And I'm so privileged compared to lots of people who... I was reading a thing, I think, The Guardian about Lauren Patterson having had yeah. to go back and get a real job. And, you know, I mean, incredibly talented comics like her, because she's not been born into any kind of privilege and hasn't got anyone to help support her. She's mm-hmm. just got to go out and earn a living. Um, and that's no bearing on how great her talent is. You know, you know, she's, she's someone who should absolutely be able to make a living just out of what she does on stage. So there's so many people who are like Lauren um, and who deserve a lot more than they can get in lockdown. And um, I'm lucky that being a bit older and having worked a corporate job, you know, I do need to earn money, but it's not desperate. You know, I've got a tiny bit of a buffer zone. I'm having to find other ways to earn money, but I've got options. So I'm aware of the, I'm checking my privilege on that. But it is true that despite all of that, because I was sort of um, out of commission for those first few weeks of lockdown and sort of in and out of social media, depending how well or ill I was feeling, And it seemed to me that everyone was doing amazing things. I was like, oh no, everyone's written a book, launched a podcast, doing an amazing Insta live thing, been all over the Guardian. And I felt like the whole comedy world had adapted brilliantly, and I was just stuck in bed doing nothing. Yeah. So then I did do a couple of I did a couple of gigs while I was ill, but in little windows, and I thought I was better, and then proved not to be better. And then I've done a few since I've been well, but I probably haven't done as many as lots of people because I haven't, haven't been in the sort of circuit. But I do I've been doing corporate stuff via Zoom. I've did, I did a whole day of stuff today um, on Zoom, uh, and I I don't mind it. I think it's fine. You know, it's I see it more as um, tv presenting than a normal speech i sort of think of it more as doing a broadcast yeah. than a speech or than a gig and i think it, it's not easy and i blooming miss live comedy and i really miss i mean i drove past the bill murray the other night and i just started crying i was like oh this used to be here once a week and i had to i had to email barry and say barry i've just driven past <laughs> bill murray and i started crying probably lots of people have said that so um so yeah i have tried some live ones have you
0: I've done, yeah. I, I, do you know, what, I've only done one. Um, I haven't been writing new material. That's the thing. Like, I, I guess I do it just to sort of keep those muscles, or you know, have that, keep that instinct, and just, to, just to do it. But I don't know. Like, it's hard. I mean, you can obviously write stuff about lockdown, but I haven't really feel, haven't felt motivated to, to be honest with you. I've been writing scripts, and I've been enjoying doing that.
3: Just
2: your writing, now what, what sort of scripts?
0: I've just finished a, a sitcom pilot, which was uh, was for Channel Four. So mm-hmm. that was that was good. That's taken quite that's taken quite a few months, and now i have just sent over the final draft to them. That's Amazing. like the main thing. It was it was one of those projects. It's just, it's so different. I don't know how you feel about deadlines, but I've taught, I've been talking about this before with other guests. The importance of deadlines and when, you know, they're self imposed, it's different to when somebody says, right, we're paying you money and we need you to get this done by this, this point. And I really enjoyed that. And then since that's been delivered, I've got a few other different projects that I'm developing, but it's not the same urgency there, particularly at yeah. the moment with what's going on. Uh, are you, are you, I imagine you are very good at sort of giving yourself deadlines.
2: No, you imagine entirely wrong. Uh, so no, that is not, I'm not at all okay. good at that. So okay. um, I, I normally put myself under real pressure of like a huge amount of work. So normally right. I've got a lot of external pressure because I'm busy. Um, and no, I'm terrible. Like I've done a, I won't say for whom in case anyone listens to this, but I was delivering a big bit of work for one of the biggest uh, British TV companies this week. Okay. And, I, and I've and i had weeks that they put me to do it six weeks ago. And I literally on, I started delivering it on yesterday, Tuesday. And Monday night, I was like, I better write this. And then, of course, I'm working every night this week because every day I'm doing more of it for them. So, I mean, I'm an idiot. So, I always leave it till the last minute. Um, And I'm terrible at, I'm not terrible at, but I find writing um, creatively incredibly hard. So, writing sort of speeches and um, seminars and th- and articles, you know, I've written written a bit for some of the broadsheets and stuff. I can sort of knock out those okay. But I think writing jokes I find really hard. And I only really ever write comedy when I know I've got a gig coming up, like probably most of us. But yeah. also I do loads of emceeing and I write a lot on my feet. You know, I'm, I muck about with audiences. Right. And if I've got a bit of a germ of an idea, I'll sort of muck around with it as an emcee. So um, it's kind of the lazy person's writing, isn't it, or the untalented person's writing? So sort of just do it when things come up on stage. So the problem with that is that my whole career is very dependent on crowd work, my writing, my performance, even how I do corporates. I massively rely on what I do with audiences in the room. Yeah, and um, we haven't got any of that now, have we? So no. In answer to your question, I've barely written. Um, I've barely written a thing in lockdown, or certainly barely written a comedy thing. Um, If I do have a gig coming up, I've got one on Friday, I will write something for it. So I have got a bit of lockdown material. But, you know, you're not exactly honing it, are you? You do it like once or maybe twice.
3: Mm.
2: And then that's not topical anymore and no one cares. So I think it's very hard to write stand-up without anything to write for because our opinion about something today is going to be completely different by the time we're actually back out gigging again. So, um, you know, our observations won't be relevant. So I am wondering whether whether to completely sack off any material I've ever done before and just set myself the challenge when we go back of just starting afresh with brand new material.
3: Because
2: mm. I think by then I'll be so sick of my old stuff. <laughs> I feel like I'm dusting off my, you know, Nana's old, you know, knickers from the cupboard if I get out with my old material. So I feel I need to maybe maybe start again. But no, I, I'm not at all good at writing, no. Perfect
0: yeah, it's just, it's a struggle. I just, you know.
2: what's your work? Sorry to cut across you. What's your you work? Because writing, I particularly take my hat off to you. I'm working with um, Neil Delamere, who you may know, um, who's a brilliant Irish comedian, and we're working on a project with the QI Elves, um, which is going to end up being a podcast. But we've been doing oh, Monster Lives and he's one of the sharpest i met him doing the unbelievable truth with um david mitchell okay. and i've worked on panel shows my whole life and i've never seen anyone better at a panel than him he's sharp as you know as anything you can imagine and he um and then he is writing so in lockdown he's not i don't think he's writing much stand up he might be but he's definitely managing to write he's written um a brilliant sitcom pilot which i read and thought was fantastic and you're obviously managing to write scripts and i think that's so impressive that you guys are managing to produce stuff like that in these circumstances i just don't get so how are you doing it
0: mm, uh i i work with a script editor and so i'll you know i'll have ideas and then i'll start working on them and then i'll bounce i'll bounce them i'll bounce them off him that really that really helps having somebody else there i think but I've def I kind of decided during this period that I want to co-write more. There's pros and cons, obviously, to both sides of it. Whether you're writing on your own, but whole idea is supposed to be fun, isn't it? And it's just so much more fun when you're writing with somebody else. Obviously, yeah, you've got to be on the same wavelength, or not necessarily. Sometimes, you know, someone else has got a different style, and that complements you. So I mean, that's one big thing I've been mulling over. But yeah, to answer your question, what I was doing the first part of lockdown, I I I'd re- I'd read this book. May again you may have heard of him. Have you heard of Robin sharma
2: No, I haven't.
0: He's he's like one of these life coaches. I hadn't heard of him before, um, but someone recommended right. this book, The 5 a.m. Club. So I read that while I was on holiday at the beginning of the year, and it's like that whole, you know, positive you know, optimistic start to the year. It says new year, new me, blah, blah, blah. And um his whole thing was like, get up at five in the morning, you do this morning routine, and then you're at your desk by eight o'clock. And so I did experiment with that. Anyway. I, I, w- I did that the first part of the lockdown and it, it does work. It was working for me. Like to be at my desk from eight o'clock and then what I would do is I would time myself an hour and a half, which you're supposed to do like quality work with like your best creative work. Hour and a half, then alarm would go off, 10 minute break, read or meditate. And then an hour, t- 10 minute break up till one o'clock. And then the idea is from like afternoon onwards, admin replying to emails. So when I so did do it- the
2: hard- Yeah, you do the hard bit first then. So you do the creative bit first because everyone does it the other way around, don't they? And then never gets around to the writing
0: because you get stuck in an admin. But it's still so hard because the other thing he says is put your phone off, switch your phone off, put it in a bag, do whatever you need to do to just not have that distraction but I can't, it's like crack, this this thing, this yeah. phone is like crack. And that's, that's my biggest struggle. So, you know, I may be right for like 20 minutes and then I just, uh, just quickly check, have a little browsing. I'm really, I think that's actually been one of the most positive things for me personally during this period is to be so aware of my habits that are just ingrained in me. And I said, again, I said this before, but like just realizing how sometimes my phone can just make me so lazy, just my, my mind just so lazy, just going automatic pilot. And then before you know it, you've just been browsing on your Instagram feed for 20 minutes. like, what, what have I been doing? I've done nothing. And there was an argument to be said, oh, actually, you know what? You need that. You need to give your brain a rest sometimes. But do you really? Not not that do
2: you, way. Do you use any of those apps, those measuring, monitoring your phone time apps like oh, moments and
3: ones?
0: My sister called me today and she told me, oh, I'm, I think I've just started perspiring thinking about it. It was last week, I think it was uh, four and a half hours screen time. But I will say this I well, think four that.
2: Four and a half hours the whole week?
0: No, a day.
2: Oh, I was going to say. I was like, me, you should get a medal. Yeah, my aim is three hours a day. That's my, what I aim for. And that sounds like loads. And I do more than that most days. It's pathetic.
0: But does that. The thing, what I don't know is whether they calculate. If you are listening to podcasts, et cetera, on their audio books, whether that's included?
2: No, I don't think audio are included, but oh, I do always God. want to be unfair because if you're, on the, if, so, if you're on the go, like so nowadays that we're all grounded, I'm obviously doing emails at my computer. So that isn't going to count on my phone as screen time. In my defense, when I'm in the real world, and I, I do, you know, I run a business still, I've got a load of stuff, we've all got stuff going on, mm. I will be on my phone. Answering emails and doing genuine things I have to do. So, my, my, they, those apps wouldn't know well, you're out and about for the den, you're, you're spending like half an hour at a time answering emails in a cafe. Mm. So, my, your screen time should go down when you're desk bound because all your kind of email stuff wouldn't be on your phone anymore. But, um, yeah, I think they're a really good idea, but I get so annoyed by being told I want it too much. I just mute it all the time. i ask, like, oh, shut up. Um, it's lockdown don't have a go at me yeah it's it's, not really working
0: yeah you can let it slide during lockdown can't you I guess it's just like you're just more aware of things really of like the way that I my mind is working
2: it's a I did do a um this will make you if you're if you're crack addicted to your phone um I did a retreat for a week with no phone no tech no newspapers no contact with the outside world in December so I totally uh shut off from it and it only felt weird for probably not even a whole day like mm-hmm. there was a first maybe three or four hours everywhere i went i was like where's my fa- where's my where- oh and then i realized and i was staying in it It was a sort of in a in a in a place you know obviously of course it was in a place but we were a <laughs> house it wasn't a cult uh but we were all in a we it was the Hoffmann
0: they never life. let you out again well the next few months but yeah, yeah.
2: That was it. No, it was anyone listening. It was the Hoffman process, which some people might have heard of. Um, Okay. Yeah, there were 24 of us uh, on the on the kind of program. And uh, so you had you were in the house, you handed in your phone, you didn't need money, you didn't need anything because you were there and food was supplied and you weren't allowed to go anywhere. You could go for a walk outside the house, but you weren't meant to like go into town have a pint. And it was really, um, it was really interesting because all week I was I didn't miss my phone for all the stuff that we've just been talking about, the mm. social media. I felt much better not to be on it, but I really, I just missed my phone for what phones used to be for. I just really missed speaking to my kids, my boyfriend, my sure. mates. Um, that's all I missed it for. And when I first came out and came out, when I first got my phone, I didn't touch it for about five hours. Cause I was like, I mean, I touched it and put it in my bag, but I was like, I don't really want to re-engage with the world. I'm a bit nervous. And then for about a week, I barely looked at social media. I just used it for communication. So it was really, um, now I'm just back to where I was. But it just goes to show you can do
3: it.
0: Yeah, I've, I've experienced the same. Like I, I love, I try and go on a meditation retreat every year. And uh, I did a 10-day a, a couple of years ago. And just, yeah, first of all, you just feel like you're just so blissful. And, you know, you're, it's like your, your your mind has been reset, reprogrammed. But it's so interesting how like for, for the week after, I, you know, you, you're feeling those benefits. But then suddenly after being back in London, your hectic lifestyle, etc., everything just goes back to normal.
2: It does, doesn't it? We're really hardwired. I mean, we all know this, but we're so hardwired in what we've been doing for years. It takes such a massive pattern interrupt to sort of change all of that. What's, have you meditated for many years then?
0: I have done, yeah. I was I was fortunate because my mum was a yoga teacher, so... I I got into it when I was about eighteen, and then, oh, wow. um, and then I dipped in and out of it for years, and then I started uh, like doing it probably daily about uh, sort of seven seven eight years ago, and uh, yeah, it has a profound effect on me, definitely from all aspects, really. Like I, I, it, I if I don't meditate for a day, I just sort of like get a bit of brain fog. Yeah. I, just feel, I feel different. I don't know. Maybe I feel a bit ratty. I can I can definitely notice the difference. Last week, I did this home retreat. The London Buddha Centre put on this. Uh, usually, they'll do these retreats. And that's who I do these retreats with. Do you go to
2: the North London one? Which one do you go to?
0: I go to the East London one. My sister okay, goes okay. to the North London one. I go
2: to the North London
0: one. Oh, do you? Yeah, I okay. do. Okay. okay. I'll, I'll tell her to,
2: tell her to look, look out, out for I'll you. Yeah. Her. i her. Because I do a lot of the drop-in sessions there. So I do. obviously, no one ever knows who anyone is. So I might have seen her a hundred times. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so they did a home retreat last week. So you're just doing, obviously, like meditation via Zoom, and but even just doing added two hours every morning. I just felt by the end of the week, it just felt great.
2: Did you? Or maybe I'm going to look. I'm if the North London one are doing it because I've been doing um, the Hoffman process. of, I only just got on? Got, got realised it because I always ignore any emails that come my way because I'm also disorganised with my inbox. But um, they were sending out loads of you know what to do in lockdown I thought it was just kind of advice but they've actually got a brilliant program of um stuff they're doing so I've been doing um guided meditations with them at eight o'clock every morning okay great and that's felt really good I'm doing I'm doing a webinar with them tonight so yeah I'm quite enjoying it because I don't know about you but I do like meditating in the company of others
0: yeah I think it makes a massive difference well you're just feeding off each other's energy
2: yeah, it's good. I mean, it does make a sound like a right pair of kaftan wearing wankers, but <laughs>
3: there
2: is something about, yeah, I think there is. And also, I love the fact you don't really find out who anyone is. I love it when you drop into a meditation center for, a, you know, dropping class and no one really cares about who you are, what you do, what, you, what age you are,
0: no.
3: nothing. When,
0: when you went on your retreat, was it, uh, was there moments of silence? As loads in, of silence days yeah. silence. yeah we had that as well so how the did first, you find it well i just think it's so interesting like because you know you have like seven or eight days silence and uh you start to paint pictures of of, of like what people are like and i I'd like telling myself stories like this person does this and you build up this whole thing and then you and then the silence is over and you start speaking to each other and they're completely different to how you would perceive them to be
2: yeah. So it started. So the, one, the ones you've done, you've started in silence and got to know people after the silence.
0: Well, sometimes they would have the first twenty-four hours just sort of like speaking, but you know you don't get to speak to that many people because there's so many people there. Yeah, so you must speak to a couple of people, and so and then I always find it hilarious, like when you have the group lunches or dinners, and somebody's like, "Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, what?" <laughs>
2: i know i know it is um it's funny seeing you do that for anyone listening steve just just, sleep," and there was um, because it is an audio medium uh but yeah it's funny uh, exactly the same thing and also we were sharing rooms i don't know about you but so obviously no one's monitoring whether you're doing it in your room or not um but but me and the person i'm sharing a room with we sort of we did do it but we didn't know each by the end we knew each other well enough we'd have probably found it really hard to keep silent but i think in the beginning i was like oh i better not break the rules and she might dog me in you know so it was really weird sharing a room with someone i'd never met in silence for a couple of nights before i got to know her but yeah i found it a real relief and i'm a right old yakker box as you can hear but i found it a real relief (laughs) um not having to talk i'm sure everyone around me found it a brimming relief (laughs) i got home everyone was like why don't you try it here mum it'd be great
0: (laughs) yeah no it's it's I, i i thoroughly recommend it to 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 people to do and also I think like from a creative perspective is you need to give, you need to give like your mind time off.
3: Yeah, sometimes. you
0: do. It's like if you get to a point where you're just trying to force it, I don't think that's, that's great. Although there is, you know, a school, school of thought to be said, well, you know, you've got to treat like, a, like any job. You've got to show up every day and just and do the work. But I don't know. I'm still torn about that. <laughs> you know, like you don't want to wait for inspiration to hit, but at the same time it's, it needs to be dealt with delicately, creativity.
2: Ooh. There's um Grania Maguire, who I'm sure you know, recommended on um, my Did Grania's writing course, which anyone listening um I would thoroughly recommend. She's she's brilliant, a brilliant okay. woman, and a brilliant comic, and a brilliant writer. Um, Was
0: it? Was it? Was the writing course specifically comedy focused?
2: It was comedy focused, and there's definitely. You know, she's great. She's written for lots of kind of panel shows and topical shows. So there was a there was a good chunk on topical kind of joke writing. Uh But it was it was definitely really brilliant way to sort of just learn how to sort of structure your. She's a great, very talented, very clever person. But she she gave us lots of kind of assets to watch and read and do stuff with. And she recommended um a John Cleese speech. It's quite old. Quite old. It's a few years old. And it was him doing some kind of corporate for whoever it was. And I think it was about creativity in business was why he'd been booked. But actually what he spoke about was the creative process and about the idea that you put in all those hours and you just, like you said, you turn up, it's your job, you keep turning up. And then even if nothing comes in the hours you turn up, then later that day or the next day, it frees up the capacity for the thing you need to come. So it might never come when you're sitting trying to let it come. Mm you do that bit the real creativity doesn't ever come so it's a it's a bit like seinfeld said it i think um he he said that after a few years of being a comic he was thinking i'm not getting anywhere you know no one's noticed me why am i doing it and then he was sitting in a cafe wondering whether to give up comedy and he saw um some construction workers outside um kind of coming back from their lunch break you know they finished their sandwiches and they were going back to the building site and he looked at them and he just had this revelation that you know yeah, they might not want to go back to work right now, but they've had their sandwich and they've got to go back to the site. And why do I think I'm any different? So he was like, my work ethic stunk until then. And he said, and then I realised, yeah, if this is my job, I need to turn up and do my job every day. So from then on in, he had a proper work ethic around writing and that's when his career started to take off. So, I mean, by that, by those um, measures, I don't deserve to have a comedy career because I'm completely undisciplined.
0: I wanted to talk to you about... Um you're sort of like time management because you've got your own company you're a stand-up comedian and you're also a mother of two how the fuck do you do it all
2: (laughs) well first of all uh it's much easier now because my kids on stage I say I'm a single parent of two teenagers because it um it flows better and there's better material to be done about being a a teenage, a parent of teenagers but in actual fact my kids are older than that so I've got a 20 year old and a nearly 23 year old okay. so um I have been a single mum most of their lives so there have been definitely elements of juggling over the years and I've been the um well often the sole breadwinner um certainly always the primary breadwinner so there's been definitely been challenges although no more than loads of people listening will be going through so I don't need a kind of sainthood for that um but it's got easier now, much easier. You know, I didn't do my first ever gig was when my daughter was 14. My little one was 14. And the reason I could start comedy then was because I didn't need a babysitter anymore. You know, until then I worked full time. How could I possibly work full time, pay a babysitter and go out in the evenings? I'd never have seen my kids. But by the time they were 14 and 17, they couldn't give a shit. They were delighted that I was (laughs) going out at night. So that definitely was had an impact on why I started comedy so late. Um, And in terms of, kind of getting stuff done uh i do know i I do sort of know how to get stuff done i'm definitely quite hard i'm i'm a grafter for sure and i suppose i'm quite organized and i'm really there's a as you're probably hearing on this as much as there's a sort of light silly side of me on stage and stuff i'm quite i can be quite serious about getting stuff done you know i'm quite determined so i suppose yeah you know they say don't they that you know determination is a great um it's a great you know, alternative to talent, and I suppose <laughs> maybe that's what I've got, lots of determination. The one-time management tip, if anyone listening hasn't, doesn't know it, um, and you, know, you probably do know it, but um, I talked about it on our Insta Live show the other night. It's the Eisenhower Matrix, which Don't is um, it's the urgent, important matrix. So you Google it, and everyone – so Eisenhower is in President Eisenhower, and the theory was he was quite busy, and he had to work out how to manage his time. Uh, shame that our current president doesn't do that, but anyway, um, and he came up with this sort of quadrant. I'm drawing this out with my hands, which is hugely helpful for a podcast. But it's literally like a quadrant, say like a cross. And um, there's an axis of urgent, non-urgent, and an axis of important, -important. non-important. And the theory is you should only be working in the urgent side of the the quadrant. So why are you doing anything that's... Sorry, you should only be working in the important side, not the urgent side. So why are you ever doing anything that is not important? And what you realize when you plot what's on your radar is loads of stuff you're doing is urgent but not important. That's where we spend most of our lives. And what are right. we doing? If it's not important, why does it matter if it's urgent? Why are we doing it? And where you want to be is often in the stuff that is non-urgent but important. So the stuff that you really should be doing and want to be doing. So if you look at your analogy of um, how you would structure a day and according to the 5am the club book, what, what that book's basically doing is saying, get your important stuff out of the way first. It's not urgent, but it is important. And then do your urgent stuff later. So your urgent stuff might be, you know, you've got to sort out your broadband or your gas bill. Mm-hmm. So that book is basically saying, do do your important first and then worry about urgent, which is another sort of approach to this same thing. So if people Google the, the Eisenhower Matrix. It's a really, really good way of assessing what you should be putting your energy into and what you should, because, you know, I always used to say when I was at Viacom to my kind of staff that, you know, because we, we were overloaded always with work. And I used to say, you know, you've got to choose which hill to die on. You know, you're not going to do everything. So what are you going to say no to? And how are you going to say no to it? And are you going to give it to someone else or are you just going to ditch it? Because you'll never get it all done.
0: Yeah, the idea of saying no is so important. It's something yeah. that's taken me a long time to get better at. I feel bad. I feel bad about saying no to things. It's not even just bad, bad, like, you know, the FOMO thing as well. Oh, I don't want yeah. to miss out on that.
2: I know, just say no, I'd be really bad. I'd be the worst person to work for Nike on that ad campaign. (laughs)
3: Just
2: Just don't do it. Uh, But I think it is, um, yeah, just because you you can't do everything. And and it's a bit like, um, you know, when you're dating the wrong person, you're never going to meet the right person because you're with the wrong person. Um, So you're putting your your kind of dating hours into that person. Um, So you're not opening, you know, you're not opening life up to another person coming along. And it's a bit the same when you're busy doing all the wrong things. That aren't really helping you get somewhere in whatever, when I say get somewhere, I don't mean get somewhere financially. I mean, do what you want to actually do. Yeah. Then you're blocking all the time. You could be doing yeah. something else. So time spent on the wrong things really does take time. So I think I'm, I probably have a bit of a sense as to what matters to put my energy into, but I mean, not always I'm, you know, I, but I do work. I'm a bit of a workaholic. That's probably more. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I do. I do. Anyone who's um knows me well would say I'm a bit of a workaholic.
0: So, what do you what do you do to unwind? And you said you you run. You what know, what else do you need to sort of get some get some respite?
2: I find it. I'm really. Um, I find it really hard to, to. I do find it really really hard to switch off. Um, and I very rarely like watch telly. And I think that's probably because I've worked in telly my entire career. So for me, it's slightly less relaxing. It feels a little bit like. That's what I've always done, and I've had to watch a lot of telly over the years from for work. Right. So I'm kind of associated. Sometimes I'm sitting down with a TV show because I'm meant to be doing something with it. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of telly, but not as much as most people probably. Um, so reading. So I find um, either either reading, reading, or audio books. Love audio books. Love podcasts. I'm a massive podcast fan. Yeah, running or any kind of exercise. I love I love getting getting outside. So anything green nature whatever, and it's just being outside really helps me um mindfulness and meditation really help me um and it is a it's a real constant struggle you know i'm a real candidate for burnout because i don't i don't find it easy to stop
0: well that's why i started this podcast to be honest like i wanted to find out how other people are trying to get any kind of degree of balance in their lives so i can yeah i can fully relate to that on the on the topic of books Are there any specific books that come to mind that have had a major impact on your life over the years?
2: Um, I mean, yes, the answer to that is definitely yes. But they've mainly not been uh, sort of self development type books. They've mainly been, I mean, I've read, you know, Stephen Covey and Malcolm Gladwell and all the kind of usual suspects yeah. but they've probably more been uh, I've, I've definitely heard I've listened to things that have kind of changed my changed my life in terms of things I've heard on podcasts on the radio so it'd be hard to pick a book there are certainly novels I mean I studied English at uni and I, I've read you know I'm a big reader of novels there's definitely been novels that have sort of that would stick with me forever and that have kind of broken my heart or changed the way I see the world um, but yeah probably on the self-help side I mean people like Brene Brown you know the whole concept of Vulnerability and yeah. her book Daring Greatly is is pretty. That's a big old eye opener, um, you know. But you can obviously get a lot of what she what she says in the book from her from her TED talks and her her TV shows. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are concepts like that where I'm like, oh wow, yeah, vulnerability in your life and that in and I'm talking about that. Well, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a head fuck. I never thought about that. So there are definitely things where the scales have fallen from my eyes. Yeah.
3: What
2: about
0: you? Have there been books? I mean, obviously you've got your five AM club. Yeah, got that. like shut up about the five AM. Club. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to uh, think of books that I haven't said before. though that's not very helpful to you in terms of books that I said before. Um, there is. A, there's a few that have had impacts on me in specific ways. A book called Finding Ultra, which is by a guy called Rich Roll, who's got a podcast, and it was basically about how he went from being an alcoholic, sort of on the verge of having a heart attack, to becoming a vegan uh, endurance athlete and like one of the top 25 fittest men in the world in his sort of early 40s. That got me into doing triathlons and it was also partly responsible for me going on a like a plant-based diet. Right. I really but like You
2: really it. are annoying me, healthy, aren't you?
0: Yeah, but it's more like. But I think it's. I. I don't know if it's healthy. Healthy. It's more neurotic. Healthy.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I've 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 dated a couple of people um, who've been into doing um, iron. I never know whether you call them iron men or iron mans. But yeah. I have dated a couple of men who were into that, and bloody hell, um, people are like, oh, they must have been really sexy, and like they were bloody boring. All they did was worry about their. Tra- you know, if someone's training for an Iron Man, that's all they're doing. You're you're at best a small inconvenient detail. So I don't know if I guess triathlon is a is a level of obsession below Ironman but you must still be absolutely relentlessly on it to, to do that
0: yeah I, I, I'm training every day I'm not doing triathlon training so much at the moment I am go for big bike rides but you are right it's quite obsessive I just want to I don't even know why I just want to do like one for Ironman and then I'm done I don't, yeah, that's I don't. What
3: everyone
2: says Steve and then they do their first and then they like, I know I it's addictive fire. isn't it it is addictive. It's like, you know, your first marathon, your first anything, you know, you can you come away from it and you just want to do the next challenge.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, this is true. Um, other books I um oh yeah, this is an amazing one by um Yvonne Chenard, who is the founder of Patagonia. The, oh, yeah. the, the brand. Yeah. yeah. I just love that because it was kind of like part autobiography, but also his like Principles as a business leader, but
2: I've seen him speak somewhere. I was at he's thing, amazing. a thing fellow speaker at something I did. Yeah, it was really, really he really interesting guy.
0: Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. And for me, that was just like it, it, he just lived a life of authenticity, like complete, you know, on authenticity. And I, I, really was inspired by that. And then in terms of comedy stuff, I love Steve Martin's. Me too. That Brothers. was one of the books
2: oh. I read before I started. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are a few, and and then fiction wise. One that has stuck with me as of late is a book called A Little Life. You heard of oh, that? Can. Write
2: this down as well.
0: It's really good. It's really good. It's about these – it's basically it's about friendship. It's, uh, to sum it up, just a book about friendship, completely original book about friendship. Um, but it is it's a very, very powerful book and it just stays with you for ages it. after. Yeah, yeah. It's, I- it's a tearjerker though.
2: I do. I love a tear joke. I did, funnily enough, and I know now it's a real cliche to say it because the TV show is so massive, but I absolutely love Normal People. Um, I thought that I never was read great. it. I okay. was so good. And I've actually only just started, even though the series is finished, I've only just started watching it um, on iPlayer because I, I loved the book so mm. much. I thought, I'm not sure I can bear to so watch what they've done with it. Yeah. And then I just dipped in and thought, I'll just have a little look. And then I thought, no, I really like what they've done with it. But um, that was, if you haven't read it, I, I think that's a, that's a brilliant book. Okay. Yeah, really
0: brilliant. Okay, I'll give it I had the same about Harry Potter. I love the books so much. I still haven't read, yeah. I still haven't watched the films. Have Can't you read the, it. Um,
2: it, it, this is linked to Harry Potter a bit. Have you read the yeah. Philip Pullman books? Have you read Northern Lights and all of those? No. Oh, well, he's, I mean, he, if you like Harry Potter, I mean, it isn't the same, but it's that sort of epic adventure, beauty. Okay. So yeah, and ones that are great for adults and kids. So yeah, the Pullman trilogy, the um, Northern Lights, Amber Spyglass, and whatever the other one is. And then he's also written two more recent ones that are sort of the prequels. Uh, So I'm just on the the fifth of those five books at the moment, Um, and they're brilliant. So if you like Harry Potter, then read some Philip Pullman.
0: Okay, fantastic. I will, uh, noted, that is noted. And then I wanted to just ask you one thing. How, is, how did you find uh, your Edinburgh experience having been sort of on the industry side of things? Because I think more than anything, like being in Edinburgh Fringe Festival as a comedian, like, you're, you're just like, you're in the thick of it. And it's like, oh, shit, this is this. This is kind of this is just quite intense. Yeah, it's got yeah. intense. When did you do your first Edinburgh? After how long doing stand up?
2: Uh, not long, so me and Catherine Bohart did uh we did a two hander called cat call uh about a year after we started yeah and we were quite she is very ambitious and very talented and I'm pretty ambitious, so we were a kind of um, a good match in that regard and we we're a good match in, in all regards and and she um and we really went at that two hander like it was um well, i've got i've got the i'm going to show you the poster hold on um I know this isn't helpful on a podcast, but I'm I'm going to describe. So you'll see that that's the poster. Um, Yeah.
0: Great. Love love the colours. Yeah. Very striking. It
2: looks like a proper kind of Edinburgh poster, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, really does.
2: We were doing, and we'd done a bit of radio by then, so we had a couple of like we could put radio four on and stuff, and we called it Cat Call, you know, short for Catherine and Callie, and it was feminist. It was looking at women. She was twenty something, I was forty something. We're both ginger, both women. Um, both slept with men and women it was that kind of so we had a lot in common but a lot not in common so the show and so we did a very very polished though I say so myself two-hander which got Catherine signed by Hannah Chambers you know best Mm -hmm. best agent in the business and got me some decent kind of attention so that was our first one Um, so even though it was a two-hander we probably took it a bit more seriously than some do for good or for bad Mm -hmm. and then the next year I did Super Cali Fragile Lipstick which was my first solo show I love that
0: title yeah the title I remember seeing that all around Edinburgh that is banging that poster is great
2: well it was the best thing about the show to be honest it? <laughs> so it I don't was, believe it. it well it was too early to do a debut so I did my debut um a couple of years after starting which is very very early and it
0: was yeah, definitely- I, I sorry to interrupt you there I did my <laughs> it was completely our naivety I did mine after three and a half months
2: <laughs> well there you go and how did it go
0: <laughs> first half was terrible second half was all right I had two venues so I couldn't get yeah, because I, I applied so last minute I couldn't get one venue for the whole month so I, I didn't know what I was doing but anyway it's amazing so I, to I have
2: that content it took me even after two years I mean that's what I was going to say It's my, my hour show after two years was everything I'd ever done that was alright just welded in together because it's all I had yeah. so if I really used all my best material and wrote a little bit new I just about had my hour yeah. so it was it was not a bad hour of stand up I mean it wasn't terrible I got some I got you know I got four star reviews and I did, I did alright with it and I sold out it's nice. So you could say, well, that's amazing, but it wasn't an amazing show. It was fine. And then Invisible last year um, was sort of much more of a meaningful show for me. And um, that was, you know, that was the year I turned 50. And it was inspired by that French guy. There was a 50 year old French um, sort of B-list celebrity called Yann Moi. who made global headlines when he said a woman at 50 um, is Invisible. Uh, and I was like, is that right? So then I um I decided to go big on being visible. So it just worked to my advantage that Brilliant. it was the year I had to turn that age. So, yeah, my Edinburgh experience um basically can best be summed up, having been in the industry my whole life, as going from being somebody to being nobody uh, with no transition because no one cares about a new comedian in Edinburgh and everyone cares when you work for Comedy Central um or ITV so I used to be the person everyone wanted at every party and people couldn't be nicer to me and suddenly everyone's like Callie who so yeah it was a Was bit that
0: hard of, was that hard for you to, to deal with that transition
2: it wasn't hard ego wise no because oh, I, okay. I I I don't you know things like money and status don't really blow my skirt up so I didn't really I found it really really liberating that no okay. one cared I was like this is really I love this no one gives a shit who I am, or what I've done, or whether I've got kids, or what my job's been. Yeah. So that was hugely liberating, but the, it really did mess with my psyche a bit. Not because of um, not because of status, but it's just incredibly hard going to Edinburgh, and I'm not as resilient as I might seem. You know, I'm I'm very I'm a very flawed person emotionally. I, I really struggle with life, and I struggle with um, thinking I'm not good enough, and thinking I'm always the outsider looking in, and all those kind of insecurities, as you know really get dialed right up to full volume in edinburgh so um edinburgh's properly i mean particularly super cali Fragile lipstick that year i properly kind of almost fell apart there i did not do well psychologically i I did better last year i went in more forearmed last year but um i'm I'm not mentally a good candidate for for edinburgh i I suffer from too many demons to cope well in edinburgh
0: yeah i i think everyone's the same everyone it's it's some people
2: complain but they seem to actually like it
0: i think you. and look obviously if you are having like a dream edinburgh run and you just it's just you've got audiences every day you don't have to worry about any of that side of things then and you're all mentally efficient (laughs) (laughs) you know emotionally efficient and then you're very small minute are going to be fine but yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's tough. It's definitely tough. I haven't done an NMR since 2017. Uh, I don't have any major intentions to do one anytime soon at the moment. Not at the moment.
2: But anyway, you can't. I too. can't
0: anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, the decision yeah.
2: is made. Take it off your list of decisions for the it's next year or two.
0: One less thing to worry about. That makes me feel a lot better. Well, look, I really appreciate you um, taking the time to come and speak with me. We got Pleasure. there in the end. Um, we
2: did. I'm really sorry that I might, you know, it's ironic you said hey, you're really good at time management when I utterly buggered you around for weeks on end. But as you know, I wanted to do it. It just didn't come got
0: together. A, it happens. We it did. happens. You're a, a busy lady. I was going to ask you about panel shows, but kind of, I don't... I mean, panel shows, panel shows. You've done a fair, you've done a few panel shows, haven't you? You've done a fair few.
2: Yeah, I mean, Q, I did do um, an episode of QI literally four days before lockdown. And it was it was the last one they recorded with a studio audience. And even then they spread out the studio audience. So we did have an audience. Um, and then the ones they did another couple the night afterwards, where apparently they did them with no audience. Yeah. And then they had to stop the recording, Um, so mid-series. So I did hear that that one, I did it with Ashling B and Holly Walsh and i i did hear from a rumor had it from qi towers that it was going out sooner than later but anyway i haven't i never i never watched them anyway i've never watched anything do
0: you enjoy doing them do you you find them quite
2: i love doing them and i get there. i find them really stressful because i'm I'm, i suffer from imposter syndrome you know as much as the next person so i'm always like turning up there going oh there's been a terrible mistake um and it's going to be awful but i do i i you know i really loved the last one yeah um yeah they i mean gosh every time I do one I think that every comedian in the business wants to be doing one so if I'm going to be all you know mealy mouth and go oh, I hate doing them they're really everyone to be like oh, why don't you piss off because I'd yeah. like to do it so I think you, yeah. you know you've got to if you're there you got to enjoy it and and appreciate it so you're lucky to be there
0: for sure for sure okay I'm going to ask you a final question I ask all the guests on the podcast what does the idea of balance mean to you or not
2: uh so balance to me well I suppose I think about it in the terms in which I kind of meditate this is going to get very uh, this is getting very on a beach in a kaftan namasteing so strapping uh but it is uh, so there's a the the concept of the sort of um of the aspects of yourself so obviously the uh, your body and your intellect and your emotion your, your emotional self and your spirit so those four things um, when I meditate, I very much look at that the, that sort of um, that sort of quad of four things, and I check in with those. So when I meditate, I always check in with those four aspects. And I think you're doing okay if the needs of all those four things are being met. So if I can have a day where the needs of my body, my intellect, my emotions, and my spirit are being met—not necessarily evenly, but if they're all being attended to in some way then I suppose at a kind of existential hippie level for me, that would be balance. Um, and at a more everyday level, I think it is about um, if you're able to, what you said, you know, writing with somebody, how do you actually start to enjoy life again um, and enjoy writing again? So if you're getting through your day with doing some things that fulfill you and give you a sense of purpose, but above all, if there's any sense of playfulness and enjoyment, then probably the balance in your life's okay. Um, if you completely lose your sense of playfulness and everything just becomes a trudge, then your, the balance isn't probably isn't where it needs to be. So I guess there's an element of playfulness and fun in balance for me as well. So, yeah, that's what it means to me.
0: Great. Love it. Thank you. Um, where can people find out more about Cali? Where is the best place to go?
2: So my website which hasn't been updated for ages because what am i going to put on it right now and look <laughs> so um, but callibeeton.com so that has all my all my live dates as and when i have live dates um i'm also i'm um, at CallieBeatonComedian comedian on twitter um uh, sorry on uh, insta i'm at CallieBeaton on twitter um and uh if anyone's listening and's interested in sort of the broader side of what i do beyond comedy then the best place to read up about that is on Hannah Layton, my manager's website. So she's got the full kind of what I do on the corporate side, sort of the, the, the holistic me, so not just comedy me. Uh, so yeah, so there's various various ways to um, to find me, and you can book me for weddings, bar mitzvahs, Zoom conferences, funerals—not funerals, bad joke. Uh, but yes, uh, <laughs> like most comedians, I have capacity right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, fantastic. Well look again, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it.
2: Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Perfect.
0: So there we have it. Callie Beaton. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh we, we got there in the end, as Callie had uh referenced in the in the conversation. We've been going back and forth. She's uh she's a busy lady and uh we had to rearrange a few times, but we got there in the air and it was Definitely worth the wait. So, uh, as I said, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it and you found it inspirational. And as always, please do rate and review the podcast. There's, a, if you if you go into the show notes, you'll see there's a there's a review link, so you can literally just click on that and you can review very expediently and effortlessly, and it helps the podcast no end. Just getting up the algorithms and and so forth. And once again, thank you for listening, and uh, have a good one balancing acts is now made in association with the comedy crowd who are a website and community that support independent comedy creators such as myself i have a comedy crowd short which is a a two-minute video one of my characters on their website they showcase the best new videos on comedy crowd tv which is comedycrowdtv.com and across media platforms so do go and check them out